Tonight we're thinking of probably the most important subject of all, the cross. And I'm just going to think, first of all, of some words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, the cross is something that is scorned, something that is seen as foolishness, something that many have no time for, the message of the cross. But for those, on the other hand, who embrace it, it is the power of God for salvation. When I was a teenager, one of the things that was organized by a Presbyterian church was a thing called Euphrates every August time up in Korean University. It was a week-long conference for young people, and it had a great impact on my life as a young Christian. And one of the people who often came to Euphrates to, to lead in the singing was Ian White. Ian White particularly uh, wrote a lot of versions for the Psalms. But he's a tremendous piece about the cross. And this is what he says at the beginning of that song about the cross. Someone is knocking on your door tonight. You remember his name. Someone you welcomed once before tonight, and you turned him away. But his love is still the same, for the cross is still there. Even after all, even after all these years, for the cross is still there. And is calling to you, it's calling to me. It's calling to everyone to turn and believe. The cross is something that demands a response. It demands faith. It demands a change in our lives. And as we think of this tonight, we are thinking about the most important event in world history. And that's why I am disappointed that many who are here this morning, I know a few have good reasons, but so many who are here this morning chose not to be here tonight. The most important event in world history. What is their Christianity when they choose not to come and hear about the cross? In verse 16, we read, so he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on the other side, and Jesus between them. What we're thinking about tonight are the different aspects of the death of Jesus which John chooses to highlight, the things that he delays over, the things that he ponders over, the, the things that he expands upon. And as we look at what he expands upon in this passage tonight, I, I think we'll be surprised at some of the things that he does pause about. The first thing that we see is the offensive sign. If you look there in verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate probably felt greatly used and manipulated by the Jewish leaders, and something as a Roman governor he was not used to happen. They manipulated him in order to get their way in him putting Jesus to death. But Pilate is determined to get one over on these people. He's determined to have the last word. And he does this with the sign that he gets erected above Jesus' head as he hung on the cross. The sign which read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The sign was in three languages, so it all could read it. And that emphasized the importance of this message and how Pilate understood the importance of the message he was bringing. The Jewish leaders are furious. They want it changed, and they want it to be changed to say that Jesus claimed to be the King of the Jews. But Pilate refuses, and he says in verse 22, What I have written, I have written. In other words, we may put it in modern thing. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Uh, that's the way people have put it today. Pilate's refusal to change this sign, I suggest, was partly him having the last word to get one over the Jewish leaders. But it was also, I think, no doubt, because Pilate believed this was true. He believed that Jesus was special. He believed that Jesus was the rightful king of the Jews. Pilate knew Jesus was genuine, and this is shocking when we think of how he handed him over to be crucified. He was handing over an innocent man, the rightful king, and a man that he certainly had an inkling was the Son of God. It makes Pilate's actions all the more worse in doing this. And yet, how often there are many who know the truth about Jesus, know the truth even about what they should do in response to Jesus, but like Pilate, do the wrong and not the right thing by Jesus. And I wonder, are you guilty about that? Other times when you know the right thing to do about Jesus, but you fail to do it. Maybe there's something that Jesus wants you to do and you feel you should do, but you make elaborate excuses to justify not doing the right thing by Jesus. But deep down you know that these excuses are feeble. And when I speak to you about not doing the right thing by Jesus, what comes to your mind? What is there Jesus wants you to do? What is there Jesus wants you to change? What is there Jesus wants you to stop? And you're not doing it. I think you need to have a conversation with God before you go to bed. The offensive sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Secondly, we have the prophesied gambling in verses 
23 to 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, why was this incident elaborated upon by John? There are many other details I'm sure he could have shared. Why does he spend several verses speaking about the soldiers gambling? Gambling, I'm sure, was nothing new, uh, something witnessed in these situations regularly. So why does John draw our attention to it? Well, the first reason we can give is that this detail is mentioned as it fulfills Scripture and particularly Psalm 22 and verse 18, which is quoted here. This was a prophecy made by David 1,000 years before it happened. So 1,000 years before Jesus would die on the cross, it is prophesied in Psalm 22 that they would gamble for his clothes. Many other amazing things are prophesied in that Psalm 22. Now, just think about this. This is equivalent to, say, a prophecy made around the time of the Battle of Hastings in 1066. If you imagine that a prophecy was made around that time, that there would be fines given for the parties in Downing Street. Can you imagine that? That a thousand years ago, somebody would prophesy something with such detail. Do you see just how amazing this prophecy is? And this reminds us of something absolutely wonderful, that all that was happening around Jesus' death, down to the tiniest of details, was all in the plan and control of God. Now, that is wonderfully encouraging and reassuring. For God's people, for those who are loved by the Lord, everything is planned for our lives down to the finest detail. Nothing happens by chance. Everything is within the control of God. Everything is within His wise and loving control for His people, down to the tiniest little detail. I think the second reason why John highlights this gambling for Jesus' clothes is because it is a really good picture of the normal behavior of sinners in the face of Jesus' suffering and death. Like these soldiers, the world just wants to get on with its normal life, seeking how at best to advance itself and being at the same time totally indifferent 
to Jesus' death. That's what the picture is here. As I said, this is the most significant event that has ever happened in world history. Jesus dying to bring salvation for His people, to open the door to heaven. And here we have these soldiers more interested in gambling to get who would get His robe. As you and I live our lives day by day, I wonder how big an impact does Jesus' death have on our lives? Does the cross mold and reshape our thinking and our actions constantly? We're to live our lives under the shadow and under the power of the cross. Or is, at best, Jesus' death at the periphery of our daily thinking? To what degree is the power of the cross at work in your life? Is it alive? Is the power of the cross shaping and remolding you? Or are you more like these soldiers than you would like to admit? That so often the decisions you make, the priorities in your life, the way you behave has little relation to the cross and its power. When you speak harshly to someone in your classroom or in your workplace or when you're shopping, is the power of the cross real in your life? When you choose not to read your Bible or to pray at home, is the power of the cross real in your life? When you choose not to meet with God's people to read the Bible and pray, is the power of the cross real in your life? When you choose not to seek or to speak about Jesus to unsaved people around you, is the power of the cross real in your life? When you spend more of your money on luxuries than you do on Christ's work of mission is the power of the cross real in your life. I keep mentioning the power of the cross. What is the power of the cross? The power of the cross is so that we are enabled to die to sin and to self and be raised to a new life where we live for righteousness and for Jesus. When the cross is not impacting us, we're like these soldiers, gambling, where Jesus suffers, bleeds, and dies. That's so challenging, isn't it? The prophesied gambling The next thing we see is the caring son in verses 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Now, in contrast to the totally indifferent soldiers, the focus here on those who were closest to Jesus, for those who really cared for him, particularly his mother and John, his closest disciple, this must have been such a a comfort for him to see these loving faces in the midst of faces that were at best indifferent, at worst absolutely hateful towards him. We must never underestimate the impact of our loving presence among people. We must never underestimate the impact it can have on people and that it can have on Jesus. Take it when someone's suffering and someone faces a situation of death. What do you say? So often you don't have to say anything. Just be there for them. Or in the life of the church, I've shared before of an elder I knew in Wellington Street who, who said, you know, I can't do very much, but I can be there. By your presence, it's such an encouragement. Now, Jesus makes sure here that as he's facing the agony of the cross, his concern is for his dear mother that she would be looked after. And it shouldn't surprise us that he's caring about his mother because all that Jesus was enduring here was for the sake of others, was for the salvation of others, including the salvation of his mother. Mary needed that salvation as well because she's a sinner like us. Jesus makes sure that after his death, his mother is cared for, and we have a great responsibility to care for our family members. In this, Jesus is our example. Some words from 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And when you think about this, if Jesus, as he was dying on the cross and undergoing the agony of the cross, if he could see to it that his mother was provided for, surely we can see that our family members are provided for, even when we're under pressure in life. Super spirituality does not do away with family responsibility. True spirituality should help us in our responsibility towards our family members. The caring son. And then finally, the final words in verses 28 to 30. On the cross, there are seven recorded sayings of Jesus. And one of those sayings is what Jesus says to his mother and to John here. And after sharing what Jesus says to his, regarding his mother, John uses two more of the sayings to finish with. I thirst, in verse 28, and it is finished. Now, why does John choose those two 
of the seven sayings that he could have chosen from at this point. I think those two sayings give us a wonderful contrast about the cross. Those two sayings, one of them speaks of Jesus' weakness and His suffering, I thirst. And the other speaks of His victory, it is finished. And that's what we see at the cross, His suffering and His victory. I thirst, the one who is the living waters, the one who made all the water that exists in this world, the water, the one who in Moses' days brought water from the rock, the one who said to the woman at the well that he would give to her living water, she never thirst again. And he gave that wonderful invitation to the people of Jerusalem to give them living water so they'd never thirst again. The only way that he can provide living waters, the only way that he can bring satisfaction for us is by Him thirsting, Him enduring the suffering, Him enduring the agony of the cross. I remember, I think of some of the folk who were in Kenya uh, were talking about the word starving. Uh, up here in County Antrim, some people use the word starving in a wrong way. You talk about it being cold. And kind of Armagh, we know how to use it the right way. Uh, it means you're hungry and that. But I think all of us use it in the wrong way. Some of the folk who were out in Kenya one time, they were walking along. This is going back in the early days when things were maybe even harder. And one said the other, it was getting near lunchtime, and said, they said, I'm starving. And the kids just looked at them and laughed. How could you be starving? In a sense, we don't know what it means to starve. We don't know what it means to have no food, the way others experience. And when it says here, Jesus thirsts, it doesn't mean he felt the way we might feel on a very hot day if we're doing sport or doing some work. This was a thirst that would kill him. This was a thirst of absolute agony. His body was wrecked. He was in agony, and even every breath that he took, he had to push up on those nails to be able to breathe. The physical agony was beyond what we can imagine. And yet, why did he go through that? Why did he put him into this position? He who is the living waters, why did he put himself in this position that he would cry in agony, I thirst? He did it so that he then could cry, it is finished. The transaction is done. The job is complete. I have paid the price for the sin of my people in full. I have opened up the doors of heaven. I have torn that curtain in two in the temple. Now my people can enter heaven. And what does Revelation say about those in heaven? In Revelation 7, nevermore shall 
they thirst. That's not just speaking literally of being thirsty with looking water. It speaks about never being discontent or feeling unfulfilled or incomplete. It's speaking about an eternity of peace, joy, completeness. And it's only achieved that life where there's no thirst. It's only achieved through the thirsting of Jesus on the cross. Does not bring home to us why the power of the cross should be real in every part of our lives? Why we need to keep thinking about Jesus and what He has done? And for those who are in school, you should be better pupils, you should be better behaved for your teachers, you should be kinder to your classmates because Jesus thirsts. In your workplace, you should be a better worker, a more diligent worker, more complete worker, a kinder colleague, because Jesus thirsts. Those who we mix them among this week, they should see a contentment, a peace, a completeness among us, because Jesus thirsts. But then he cried. It is finished. He's won the victory so that heaven, the wonder of heaven, can dwell within our hearts even now. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we want to praise you for the kindness, the love, the mercy of Christ. So willing to experience the, the brokenness of the cross so that we who are a broken people because of sin will become a people who are complete, a people who are restored, a people who are in a right relationship with you, O oh God, and a people who are changed daily by the power of the cross. Oh, Father, help us not to lose sight of the cross, Help us this week, Father, in all that we do, in the decisions we make, Father, to do that which honors Jesus above everything else. For such grace we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.